listen. Just listen. I'm Miles Pulaski, and you're listening to Second Story Podcast. Second Story is Serendipity Theater Collective's hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music. A collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves. Sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story storyteller, Rick Walker. When I was very young, I remember asking my granddaddy, Granddaddy Walker, why he was a Baptist minister. And he said, the church is the place I've always found joy. I've had some of the happiest times of my life in the church. Sort of like my sandbox. (laughs) Yeah, like your sandbox. (laughs) My dad, Big Jim Walker, he had a place like that too. Not the church, not his sandbox, but his garage. Oh yeah, his garage. It was an oversized deal, big enough for two cars, a workshop full of tools, and his neighborhood famous barbecue pit on wheels. After dinner, that's where my father could be found. He was always the last one to get home, and I'm sure that by the time he got home, it was full chaos. Three boys under 15, the endless bickering, full chaos that only stopped when we slept. You see, I have two older brothers. The oldest, Jamie, he's left-handed. And he got special treatment. For example, he had his own special pair of scissors that only he was allowed to use. And whenever my uh, parents weren't at home, Jamie was in charge. My other brother, Kenny, he did not have his own scissors. Something that I think he blamed me for because he was relentlessly cruel to me. And worst of all, whenever my parents and Jamie weren't at home, Kenny was in charge. Well, naturally, I relished the time I had at home alone. You see, I was a latchkey kid. Who remembers being a latchkey kid? Anybody? Yeah, we got some here. Yeah, yeah, to be eight years old and in charge of your own destiny. You see, <laughs> you see, I grew up in a time where you could give a kid a key on a long leather shoelace, place it around his neck, and let him take care of his own lunches and after-school activities and call it responsible parenting. <laughs> now, if I hurried, I could get home at 3.30. That's an hour before my brothers would get home. And I would use that time to do things. (laughs) Secret things. Like play with Lysol and matches. (laughs) Or something even more forbidden. I could steal pieces of cake. Oh yeah, see everyone in our family knew that Kenny, my brother Kenny, he never sliced cake, he only sawed it, leaving behind the telltale sign of Kenny cut cake. So if I wanted to indulge in an illicit piece of cake, I would cut it Kenny style. And he got in trouble for it every time. Remember, the sweetest revenge is petty. So one day I arrived home and I uh, was, we typically uh, entered the house through the side door. Now, as I neared the side door, I noticed some movement from the backyard, but I knew no fear. I went back to investigate. In my backyard was a massive Rottweiler, black.
black and menacing. It looked identical to those evil hellhounds from the movie The Omen that made Gregory Peck wet his pants. Satan's own minion in my backyard, pooping. <laughs> Who the hell do you think you are, dog? I yelled, hey, hey, get out of my yard, dog. But the beast just looked at me and continued his efforts. Now, I suppose it's unreasonable to expect anyone, dog or human, to discontinue such an activity at my beckoning. But you got to understand, that section of the backyard, that was my sandbox. That's where my buddies and I played for hours at a time with our G.I. Joes, our army men, and our matchbox cars. And now that beast was converting my sandbox into his litter box. I took it as a personal affront. I was enraged. I picked up a rock that separated the lawn from the bushes, and I chucked it at the offending animal. Well, not really at him. It was more like 20 degrees to the left, shattering the garage window. Yeah. It may have been my backyard, but it was definitely my dad's garage. He had built it two years earlier. Not had it built, built it. The only assistance he had was in hanging the double-wide garage door. Now, it took my dad and my best friend's father, Mr. Eggleston, several tries and many beers to get it perfect. It took him the better part of a summer to build it, and now I had destroyed a part of it. With the shattering of the glass, the beast fled, taking with him any pride I had in my pitching arm. And when that dog left, a fog rolled in, or maybe, maybe it was just tears of fear that welled in my eyes. I had never broken a window before. At eight, glass had a touch of magic. You could see through it as though it wasn't there at all, yet it held at bay the brutal winters of Cleveland, Ohio. Plus, plus my brother Kenny had told me that glass is actually in its liquid state. That it moved so slowly that it seemed like a solid, but because of its viscosity, it was actually a liquid. That is why, he said, in really old buildings, the glass looks wavy like ripples on a pond. It took a very long time, but if you sat in a time machine, you could watch glass flow like syrup. Magic something so supernatural must be tremendously expensive, valuable, and difficult to replace. There was a basketball hoop placed at regulation height above the double-wide garage door. On that door were three large windows side by side. Now, we knew if we wanted to play basketball, we had to raise the garage door. We knew this because my father often told us, if you want to play basketball, raise the garage door. Because if you break a window, dot, dot, dot. And it was that dot, dot, dot that really scared us, knowing that the real punishment could be worse than the one imagined. Now, I should take a moment to... Uh, to talk about my father's brand of justice, a word I use loosely. Swift and merciless are the first two words that come to mind. If he was in a good mood or calm, he just ordered us to get the belt. We knew exactly which belt was the belt. 
the belt. We called it Malvolio. Because Jamie said that Malvolio from Twelfth Night hated any kind of fun or games. Incidentally, Jamie started reading Shakespeare when he was nine because he said it was cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Malvolio was a vicious looking belt that looked as though it was made during the Dark Ages. Not that it looked old or worn out or anything, just menacing. It was a wide black leather strap that had rows of three holes that ran its length, spaced every half inch or so. My brothers and I speculated that the holes were intended to increase Malvolio's aerodynamic performance, or as we called it, its spankability. <laughs> now getting a Malvolio spanking, that was frightening, but honestly, I don't remember it hurting. It was more a ritual of, uh, of, of bark, not a ritual of bite. A spanking with Malvolio was usually preceded by my father saying something ridiculous like, uh, you asked for this. And I would think, no, -uh, I didn't ask for nothing. Man. <laughs> On the other hand, my father's temper could get the best of him, and he would show the worst of himself. His most violent, angry reaction occurred the summer before we were on a family vacation, we made the very long drive from our home in Shaker Heights, Ohio to Montreal, Quebec, about 600 miles. Oh yeah, we filled our Bel Air station wagon with our luggage. We all got into the car. My father turned the key in the ignition and I asked, hey daddy, when we get to Montreal, I can, can I go swimming? Well, of course. You see, I had been told that the hotel had an indoor swimming pool. Indoor! Come on, you gotta know what I mean. I mean, I mean, how cool is that? I was seven years old and I didn't even know that an indoor swimming pool even existed. I mean, I had thought about it during the snowy months, how fantastic it would be to have a, a pool that was inside a building that you could swim in during the snowy months. But I figured, hey, if it was invented, somebody in the neighborhood would have one. So when I found out that not only did an indoor swimming pool exist, but it was at our destination, I was overflowing with excitement. I'm going swimming in a building. We were nearly out of the we were nearly out of the driveway when I asked, "Hey, when, when we get to the hotel, I can go swimming, right, Daddy?" Yep. By the vac vacant lot at the corner, I asked again. Again, at Scotty's Five and Dime, it kept occurring to me how unbelievably magnificent it must be to swim in a pool that was inside a building. I mean, the notion that this ecstasy could be forgotten or, or somehow missed by my parents kept reoccurring to me, and it was all too horrific. I needed assurance. Hey, Daddy, swimming at the hotel when we get there, that'll be okay, right? Cleveland Heights, Willoughby Hills, Mentor, Daddy, Painesville, Ashtabula, swimming? Erie, Pennsylvania, can I? By the time we got to Buffalo, New York, my father snapped. If you ask me about swimming one more time before we get to the hotel, I'm gonna smack the shit out of you. Well, I was scared. I didn't know how hard you would have to smack a kid in order to make him 
soil the fruit of his looms. But I was pretty sure my dad could smack that hard. I mean, he was a giant to me. He could still pick me up with ease and put me on his shoulders. I was certain he was one of the strongest people in the world. He could certainly beat up Charlie Hall's dad. My father's graphic imagery had created a visual in my mind that distracted me for about 23 miles when a new question suddenly entered my mind. Was I not allowed to go swimming? Or was I just not allowed to ask about it until we got to the hotel? I mean, it was killing me. Could I go swimming? I, I didn't know. Rochester, New York, Syracuse, would I swim? I certainly wasn't gonna ask about it, at least not before we got to the hotel, at least not out loud. The St. Lawrence Seaway, the Canadian border, agony! Finally, the Hotel St. James, Montreal. <laughs> the five of us entered the hotel room, my mother first, carrying only her purse and the room key. My two brothers and I, each carrying a small bag, followed by my father, who was laden down with multiple suitcases like a pack mule on a mining expedition. But I waited. Oh yeah, I, I let him put down the last of the four suitcases he was carrying. Mm -hmm. I even gave him a moment to reach into his back pocket and pull out a handkerchief to wipe the sweat from his brow. I had been patient long enough. <laughs> Through a broad yet determined grin, I asked, Daddy, can I go swimming now? I never saw it coming. With all his strength, he smacked me in the face. It hurt so bad that I couldn't cry. I was stunned. Everyone was stunned. The hotel room was silent except for the ringing in my ears. In a daze, I walked to the bathroom mirror to see what this kind of pain looked like. And there on my face was a perfect imprint of his hand, like one of those plaster art projects you do at camp. And when I looked very closely, I swear, I swear, I could see the ridges of his fingerprints. The stroke left such an impression on me. Now I ask you, if this was the punishment for asking to go swimming, what was he going to do when he found out that I had destroyed the miracle called glass? <laughs> I raised the garage door to see if anything could be salvaged. I immediately saw that I was dead. My first thought, how can I frame Kenny for this? But this was no piece of cake. There was just no way this could be fixed. There were just too many shards of glass. I panicked. My next move would make perfect sense to any eight-year-old. I ran to my room, I slammed the door, and I hid under my bed. Of course, I thought, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just hide under my bed until this whole mess blows over. I can sneak out at night and eat brownies and cinnamon toast until everyone just forgets about the glass and they'll just be glad to see me. And while I was working out the details of my master plan, I heard my oldest brother, Jamie, downstairs. 
I knew it was Jamie because I could hear Elton John's Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy playing on the stereo. If it had been Kenny, we would have heard Pink Floyd, but Elton John meant Jamie. After some time, I started to see the impracticality of my hide under the bed until this whole thing blows over plan. And then I did something I had never done before and have never done since. I asked Jamie for advice. I told him about and showed him the window. Now, Jamie told me that the best thing to do, the best thing to do was to tell our father exactly what had happened the minute he got home. Seven years older and this is the best he could do? This? I mean, I had to keep in mind that this was the same dude who told me to uh, put a bobby pin into an electrical outlet, <laughs> but to lick my fingers first. I mean, this, this honesty is the best policy crap just didn't feel right. But my brother was being uncharacteristically kind to me and he even helped me clean up the glass. <laughs> now, I don't want to make my father seem like a, a monster or a petty tyrant. A couple of overzealous slaps and an occasional visit from Malvolio is nothing compared to the punishment his father meted out. My father was whipped with an electrical cord when his father wanted to teach him a lesson. They say that my grandfather was missing three teeth from a beating he had gotten from his father when he was 14. And that his father was beaten with an axe handle. My great-great-grandfather had been a slave, so who knows how he was punished. The point is, each generation had done better than the previous generation. So when my father arrived home and I told him about the story about the dog and that I had thrown the rock, when I told him that I had broken the window, to my surprise, he wasn't angry at all. He took the opportunity to teach me how to replace a window. Change like ripples in glass can take generations. That was Rick Walker. If his story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar and the Morse Land, or one of our upcoming special events. Visit our website for more details. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Ozzy Toten, Mikhail Fixel, and Sherry Pentamone. I'm Miles Pulaski. Second Story is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Arts Council Estate Agency, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, Arts and Business Council, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, and our performers, or to make a donation, visit us at secondstory.com.